nightcaps of the living dead. It's all hereditary, baby. Okay, so I am coming out of the gate with a divisive statement. So tell me if you agree or disagree. I think there are hereditary people and there's Midsommar people. Like you can like them both, both but not equally. You like one more than the other, right? Interesting. Mm-hmm. I think so. And they have they feel strongly about it. Like, no, it's this one. Right. I, I agree with this. So which I one totally do you like better? I like Hereditary better. <gasps> I like Midsommar better. <gasps> We're on the opposite side I of this okay. debate. So in that same vein, Get Out versus Us. Which one do you like better? I like Us. I like Get Out. This is not scripted, oh, guys. wow. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Because, okay, Hereditary is Ari Aster's debut. Get Out is Jordan's debut. I like Jordan's mm-hmm. debut. You like Ari's. And I, I love yes. Midsommar. And Us, I really like. I really, really like Us. But if Get Out was playing on a TV, it would be just like Jaws. I'd have to sit down and watch it to the end, you know? I mean, it's like picking between chocolate and ice cream or something, <laughs> right? You can't. It's, they're so close. But I, I just like... I love that you went to chocolate takes, for Get Out and Us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, chocolate ice cream because it's my favorite. <laughs> Um, no, but I think us just has this other like it's a weirder, more complex movie mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. and more experimental it has more experimental elements to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. That. I think, and I feel like it's a movie that I'll be able to rewatch and rewatch and kind of get more and more out of it through the years. Wow, I mean, the and I just feel so differently because for Get Out, that's my thing. Like I watch it, I, I get something different every single time I see Get Out. Well, here's the thing. I, I actually just taught Get Out this week in oh. my class, and oh. I used it as an example of... I take the scene, the tea scene, and I use it as an example of, like, building a scene, building a character, subtext, mm-hmm. and we go into all the symbols, the cutting on the chair, the mm-hmm. tea. And so it's a great movie to teach with, actually. Okay. And I also use it to teach camera work, like how the visual storytelling of that scene like when it switches to like sink into the chair <laughs> and all that stuff and so but no no but of course get out is a masterpiece it's gonna be a classic film top 10 of all times mm-hmm. i a hundred years kind from now we'll talk yeah. about the movie but then i think i have a, a, a fun connection to oz's kind of messier experimentalism well yeah i, I agree yeah I, I i mean i love both of them but going to hereditary and midsommar i kind of forgot about hereditary i remember seeing it in the theater and liking it to a point like i i was really thrilled and scared and admired the artistry of it but i remember in the theater i remember not liking the ending and i thought okay on this rewatch oh. am i gonna like the ending and again i didn't really love the ending and now that Ms. samar has come out and i haven't seen hereditary since Ms. samar i'm like the endings are actually a little similar i was gonna say i literally wrote at the end of my notes they're the same movie but that's the mark of a great director true they they kind of revisit the same themes and add layers to i mean jordan peele does the same thing mm-hmm. you can make comparisons between all of his films um, but this one was really like after, you know, because you and I did a deep dive into Midsommar, which right. is the episode that will <laughs> okay, <guys. laughs> we'll never be aired. 
Do you want to tell them about it? I'll I'll try. <laughs> so, guys, we have something called the Wine Vault, if you're not familiar. When we get too drunk and fucked up and high on our own supply of just, like, movie theory and, uh, like, we just get a little too crazy, the podcast ends up being five hours, and we can't edit it down, and it gets nonsensical, and it just gets so messy, and I do not want to subject your ears to that. So we have the wine vault. Midsommar lives in the wine vault, and we tried to resurrect it because it's such a great movie. We thought, May, May Queens, let's get this out. It was, it was such a goddamn mess. We are, <laughs> we, I, oh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It, it, and it, it partly is because we did the director's cut, which is very, very, very... Don't blame very, it on whoa. that. I take full responsibility. <laughs> We're talking about acid trips and like her fabulous code at the end. Like, we just go off the rails. It's, it's bad. It's not good. So, <laughs> but guys, we promise you, Hereditary, I, I feel awesome about this because, one, we have conflicting thoughts about this. I enjoyed it, but I still stand by my theory. I don't like the ending. I, think, I don't think this should have been a two-hour movie. I think it's bullshit that it's a two-hour movie. It's really okay. fantastic, <laughs> but it, it should not be two hours. Okay, so Ari Aster, love him. Clearly ingenious and very influenced by, I can never say his name, Ing- Ingmar Bergman? <laughs> Ingmar Bergman, yes. <laughs> so so Ing- Ingmar Bergman. Can you just say that line? <laughs> Ingmar, it's, he's very heavily influenced by Ingmar. No, I can't say it either. See, right? Ingmar Bergman, the Swedish... Oh, tour. <laughs> so Ari Aster is heavily influenced by Igmar Bergman. <laughs> Ingmar. <laughs> I-N-G. Ingmar. There you go. That, that's like it. Ingrid Bergman, but only <laughs> but with <not>. the M-A-R. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do, do you like his films? I know in film school. I mean, I mean, I did not go to film school. You did, obviously. I, I do. I feel like they really, they really push those films. I think they, yeah, because Ingmar Bergman films deal a lot with very heavy emotions and subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of weight that a Ari Aster movie has definitely comes from, mm-hmm. from that influence. Mm-hmm. He's not afraid to deal with the, with the hardcore shit. What's your favorite one? Uh, um... Oh my god, it's been so long since I've watched one. I mean, of course, The Seventh Seal is like... See, that's mine. That is one, my the, favorite one. I mean, Max von Sydow for life. There's a movie. Oh, Persona also. Persona is one of the most brilliant things of all time. I've not so. seen Persona. Oh, Persona is like the original Mohan Drive. You're oh, gonna damn. love it. It's not acting. All right. So that's my weekend <laughs> thing. Okay. Yes. I'm down for that. Amazing. But there's one that has like red walls that I always remember. It's very intense. But anyway, all of his films are mm-hmm. phenomenal. And he had a very long and illustrious career. And mm-hmm. Max was his main muse and collaborator who just recently passed away. He was yeah. still alive. What? I know. He, the man lives like 200 years old. I don't know how he did that. Um, but um, uh, so I, I read that Ari showed the crew before filming a lot of Bergman films, and especially Autumn Sonata, which I tried to watch before this uh, podcast. It wasn't my vibe. I, I like other of, of his films, but I didn't like Autumn Sonata. I'm like, eh, let's wrap it up. Stop talking to the camera. And <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't like that one. It was his 70s period. So I. Mm. 
Oh, he put out interesting. That's an interesting one to show to the crew. And cries and whispers was another. Cries one. and whispers. That's the one that I was trying to remember. Ah, okay. So would you <laughs> agree? This has cries and whispers. Oh elements? yes. Oh yes, because I think one of the things that he's doing here, which I wrote down, is like the it's the horror of of grief itself, not the death. So mm-hmm. I think he really focuses. On the aftermath of a death, mm-hmm. on the on the on the on the pain that doesn't go away. And well, stuff like it, that. it's the trauma. It's the actual familial trauma, and the dynamics and processing grief in a modern time period. And what I really enjoyed, like really, I I thought Hereditary would be more of my jam than Midsommar because I am all about fucked up family dynamics, and I'm all about how our society. Our society really presses people to grieve, quote unquote, correctly. And mm-hmm. and if you have a problematic relationship, in my personal experience, it's harder to, well, it's not harder, it's just a, a complicated process to mourn the relationship and then the person. And you keep asking yourself, like, am I grieving the right way? Um, and you feel bad if you don't feel so sad. And it's a lot of internal exploration. And I thought that this movie did get that on point. I I really appreciated how original and honest and deep that cut. And on top of that, the fact that the movie starts with a death and a a grieving, a complicated relationship, right? The relationship Mm -hmm. with her mother, who she wasn't the closest with Mm -hmm. then to opt this, but that's not really the inciting incident of the movie. The inciting incident of the movie is another death. Mm. She's her daughter mm-hmm. on top of that death. So it's like, a, what's worse than grieving? Grieving two people. <laughs> like, who you have a, a two for one. <laughs> Sometimes two for ones are not good. Completely different relationships with, right? That's so um, it's like she's already in this kind of pain. At the, and I mean, Tony Collette should have totally gotten an Oscar nomination for, for this. I'm sorry. I, I agree. But the Academy Insane. is so snobby about horror movies. I mean, I agree. She was phenomenal in this movie so i'm going to cut to the log line the log line is after their reclusive grandmother passes away the grand family tries to escape the dark fate they've inherited as an overwhelming terror takes over their household and their peaceful existence is ripped apart so what you were saying yeah right because also i'm like that makes it sound a little bit more whimsical the from what it is it's actually just so unsettling and so uncomfortable this whole movie um i would classify this as a as a family drama with horror elements and and then at the end it goes off the rails which we'll talk about that i have a problem with that i think that you're fine with and we'll argue about it but um like you pointed out the opening that the title like after the title card dissolves we see the obituary and the obituary is very mm-hmm. cold and sterile and then we have a trick shot and please tell me with your your cinematic brain the mechanics of this trick shot it was so cool this is also the reason why i like this movie more than Midsommar. It's actually this element that Tony Collette is this miniature artist, mm. and the opening shot is showing one of her miniatures. So she um, recreates moments of her life in miniature form using these little um, models and so forth. And if you recall, one of my very first short films, Quiet in the Hallways, about an architect 
who designs models and then uses that to kind of express her oh. emotions of revenge. Wow. This movie reminded me of that. And that's what I love about it because there's this artist that has a view on events memory in her life and this is what she does mm-hmm. and she's in the middle of a project she's in the middle of the whole movie she's in the middle of putting together a show for a gallery mm-hmm. and so the events of the and it's a very personal all of these things that she makes are supposed to be very personal mm-hmm. they're like intimate spaces from her life from her family from her house that she's recreating and then as the events unfold of course she's constantly making new miniatures about the traumas that she's going through so the the the, the project itself um, changes. So that's why I love about this because I love the connection between her processing this through art. Mm-hmm. And that's what the movie starts with. Uh, yeah. So the trick shot. So I think the way this works is that they, they built the set where the where the room is and i actually think they built the entire house this way because they play with your mind throughout oh throughout. no there's a whole thing about the production design like i i went down a rabbit hole i i have never i mean since that citizen kane shot from the camera panning up from the floor i had not read about such intensities in the production design because for this the the camera um it goes into tony Collette's workshop and then it pans from that window and then it lands on the miniature house and the front wall is removed. Mm-hmm. And then a pan reveals that there's actual real boy sleeping in the room. And then there's like maybe 20 to 30 seconds. And then Gabriel Byrne, who I forgot was in this movie. I totally forgot because <laughs> it's Tony Collette and, and the little clock clock girls movie. <laughs> it's their movie. Clock, clock. I, yeah. So I, I forgot he was in it. And it was such a cool effect because, yeah, you're in the miniature house and you kind of wrap your brain around it for the first time of, oh, okay, this this woman is executing her artistry. She's mimicking her surroundings. And so metaphorically and thematically, the miniature homes and the rooms that she's building, like, you know, they're her. They're the family and they're fucked up dynamics and the dolls are restricted to this home, but they're affected by outside forces. You know? And in a way, what's what's going on with with Tony is there's which this comes from the movie. That's why I like this because it comes from this quite in the whole movie. It's the sense of control mm-hmm. when you control your spaces, mm. you feel like you're in control of your life. Mm. And so, by starting that movie, remember it frames the uh, foreshadowing the treehouse, which is so key to the story. Right? Mm-hmm. It's framed within a frame, and then it shows you another frame. And it's the miniature, and then we go into the reality. So it's this idea that there's a higher power mm-hmm. controlling everything, and this higher power, in that's how the movie begins, right? So there's death, right? The yeah. obituary. Somebody died. Who controls? This movie asks that question of, I mean, I guess it's like a religious question or not, which we'll get to then the second half of the movie, but who is looking at us who who are we pans of who is that god who's playing with us like little dolls and so the fact that the movie connects that with the main character and the fact that she loses control of everything because of what goes down mm-hmm. which is the worst thing that could ever happen to her because her entire artistry relies on controlling space mm. and so and that kind of gets into this like meta thing about the movie controlling everything in a movie mm. and in production design mm-hmm. and the fact that you you have to give up that control to something that you don't know and then that that's the sinister force that then becomes kind of like 
leads to that Rosemary's Baby ending, so to right. speak. Right. Well, and, and um, also, I think that the whole meta-ness of it all, it, it, it just, if you think about it too much, you might go crazy. It's like yep. the MC Escher <laughs> hand drawing a hand, and I mean, it just gets a little crazy. Because um, I didn't know this. It was just doing research for this episode that... For the production design, the interiors, they wanted the dollhouse and the actual house to match each other. And they did exhaustive mm-hmm. location scouting in Utah. So all the exteriors are in Utah and look so beautiful. But the inside, they built everything, everything, the house, two tree houses, two separate tree houses on sound stages. And they did everything from the wallpaper, wooden floors. Um, they have that attic. <laughs> I mean, everything's on a stage. And to me, it's so interesting because as the movie unfolds and Toni Collette is adding to her dollhouse and the events of her life, I just keep thinking Ari Aster is a director and he has these living doll actors Mm -hmm. inside this house that he constructed and he's doing his primal therapy. Like whatever the hell happened to him is being like, it's just fascinating to me again if you think about it too much you, know, you might go insane and if you see yeah, Ari and- give him a hug because something happened <laughs> <laughs> and within the frame of the movie so the frame of the miniature house also repre- represents the frame of the film that you say Ari Aster is working his own traumas through so there's a reflection of like okay whatever Ari is working with through this movie is also what Tony's working into this movie but then on top of all of that there's this sense that the person looking mm-hmm is not who you think it is. True. The person controlling everything is not Ari. So it makes the movie feel like it's haunted by something more sinister, more diabolical. Right. And that's where the narrative kind of turns towards. And that's why I find it fascinating because I think it completely unsettles the viewing experience because you're not watching, you think you're watching Ari Aster's movie and there's something about it that... You just feel weird. Leaps, you just feel yeah. uncomfortable. Like, and, oh, I was so unsettled right. when I was watching this last night. I was like, like you, you need a I palate could, cleanser afterwards. You need to look at videos of baby ducks or something. It's just, it's just so you feel unsettled, and there's some really good jump scares. But like to what you were pointing out, a theme of this movie: there are always people looking at you. People are looking mm-hmm. at you. Some looky loos, and nobody ever likes that. You know, if you're sitting in your car, you can kind of feel if somebody in the next car is looking at you it's just it's so creepy and i felt that way the entire time it was so strange but um, like you're not alone when you're watching it yeah one thing that weird thing that happened to me you know how in the movie there's that like um light in front of the house like in front of the garage that has that sensor that turns on Mm -hmm. movement the Mm -hmm. movement sensor so we have those here same and i want you to use that in baby by the way i want you to use this in your script because it's a really interesting technique i think it's a good scare technique it freaks me out all the time so when i was watching the movie and that was happening in the movie right remember you see the light turn on because Mm -hmm. someone's going walking outside the light turned on here and that's telling me that someone's right there and I've managed to discover that it, it's a pretty good sensor. So if someone's just walking in the sidewalk, it'll trigger it. So it's just someone walking by. But I looked. Mm-hmm. So I was like, immediately I thought, someone's standing right outside my door. <laughs> just like standing there. And it just, the movie created the sense that the dread within was alone. inside. The dread within <laughs> is inside. Oh, my God. I My house is part of those. It's weird. It really eliminates... The, the thing is that wall between the screen and the viewer mm-hmm. and it doesn't enough this is why like it doesn't in a weird fascinating 
unsettling way. Well, and, and I want to bring up, too, with um, the production design, with what they constructed. They made the walls just huge, like really, really tall walls, because they want to get as wide an angle as possible. So the actors would seem really small. So mm-hmm. they wanted to be like dolls in a dollhouse. And um, and then they shot this in that gorgeous two point. Is it two to one? To, can I say two point one ratio? They shoot it in that it's gorgeous two two three five one two point three five one two point three four right? and not two one. I thought it was two to one ratio. No, because two to one would just be well. It's kind of I means just slightly two point thirty five. I don't know why it's the white screen. After we reveal that Gabriel Burns in this movie, <laughs> he takes his son out and they're kind of rushing out the house. It's kind of like home alone, but dark. They're like, we're going to the airport. We forgot Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> like Charlie's in the treehouse and Gabriel Byrne hates Charlie this entire movie. He's always like on her ass about everything. So she's in the treehouse and it's cold. She doesn't seem to be bothered. They go to church and then Tony is giving an equally rigid eulogy about um, how reclusive she was. She was private and hinting they had a really tumultuous relationship. And and in my head, and I have been in Tony's spot, and I I saw Hereditary in the theaters after my mom died, like pretty close to. And I, I remember resonating hard with that because one, if you have to give a eulogy or write an obituary, it's one of the hardest things that you can ever do because you know how your feelings are. And you have to gauge how public you want your feelings to be aired and how truthful and honest you're feeling at the time. It's a very mm-hmm. uncomfortable thing to do. And when she's giving this eulogy, she's definitely in pre-phase one of processing. She's still in shock, in my opinion. People don't really talk about the shock that goes along with with grieving. Everybody's always like, oh, processing and denial and that. It's like, no, you, you are genuinely shocked and you have to register the information and then you start adapting to day-to-day life. So um, anyway, she's there. We're getting the, the vibe that this is going to be an uncomfortable scene. And Charlie is there, this extremely talented actress. And people, and myself included, I thought, did they do prosthetics? Did they do CGI to her face to give us even more so of an uncomfortable feeling of this child existing? I mean, what did they do to her? And here's the thing. She doesn't really look like that. She pl- They played up her features. She has a disease. I'm going to try my best to pronounce this correctly. It's called cleidocranial dystosis. Cleidocranial okay. dystosis. And that's a rare disease. And all the women in her family have it, apparently. And it affects your bone structure. So she was on Broadway. She was doing fine on her own. And and Ari Aster got a little bit of blowback of like, are you trying to kind of weird the audience out just by this girl's features? And he's like, no. I mean, in my opinion, she she killed it. She, she It was empowering. She is somebody that you're going to remember for the rest of your life if you see this movie. She was so unsettling with her performance, not just because of her features. And she was really sad when this movie came out because she knew she didn't really look like that. With with lighting and makeup, they made her look even more deformed because they really wanted to play up that vibe of she was always displaced, you know? Mm-hmm. And and now, guys, if, if you're on TikTok, if you're a whippersnapper on the social medias, go seek her out, Millie Shapiro, because she is a proud and loud punk rock lesbian. She seems awesome. And she's like doing music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, 
go to Stranger Things, girl. We're not done seeing you. We want to see more of you. But um, so she's in the church. And we notice the camera is very specific of looking at Tony Collette's necklace. And then Grandma Witch, which we know. I'm just going to call her Grandma Witch. She's in the coffin. And then little Charlie, she looks to the side. And there's a looky-loo. Like, there is this Cobra Kai-looking guy just staring at her. Yes. <laughs> I noticed that. It, you know what it reminded me of? You remember the whole three man and a baby ghost figure by the yes! window? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. That's what it reminded me of. It freaked me the fuck out. For listeners who are not young enough to remember this, there was this 80s comedy called Three Men and a Baby starring Steve Gutenberg, Tom Selleck, and Ted Danson. It's great. Watch it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> basically, it's a comedy about. We, we don't have three to men. tell the backstory. We don't have to go into detail. One of those, but it's a very light movie. It's fun. So, what happened was when it came out in video, when this is the the early era where you can pause and rewind and look at things in a different like not just watching a movie in the theater people noticed that there was this like kid st- standing ghastly behind this curtain in one scene mm-hmm. and it, and it became an urban legend that there's a ghost in the movie three men uh, three men and a baby and so people were renting it and pausing the ghost and all this stuff and it just became a thing. Somebody had died in the house that they were shooting. So they turned an 80s comedy into a horror film. <laughs> and it was the talk of this hound. Later on, I think it was debunked that it was just like someone who was working in set design. I mean, now as an like older that. person, I love that you brought this up. Because an older person, I'm like, yeah, it's some dickhead that didn't get out of the shot. Like It's some yes. PA behind the, the window. But I do remember when this was unveiled that I, I went down a, a rabbit hole. I was like, oh, my God, tell me about, you know, the Wizard of Oz. And you can see the munchkins, like a dead munchkin hanging in the set. I remember <laughs> loving these on-set horror stories. But anyways, and I also went to the 80s because in my notes, I'm like, why is Cobra Kai just smiling <laughs> at her? And I'm like, and he, he also has a Dolph Lundgren thing going on. He has really bright white hair and super white teeth. I'm like, okay, well, it's Utah. You know, the, the whiteness is glaring everywhere <laughs> but um what else is happening oh so at that funeral charlie's eating chocolate you know and chocolate represents mm-hmm. decadence and sin and temptation and all that and gabriel's on her ass like stop eating that they go back to the house and she he's like take your shoes off like he is on her ass all the time and the first time i saw this i'm like oh he did not want this baby he's really upset with her the second time i saw this and there's no mystery if you're listening to this podcast you have seen this movie if you have not seen this movie and you're listening it's on showtime go check it out and then come back because i'm going to tell you something that will change your viewing experience because we know what we know well we know the ending so if you haven't seen it you rewatch from the beginning yes yes. and you know that charlie is never charlie charlie is Mm -hmm. a demon Charlie was never Paymon. 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 <laughs> so she's Paymon, this king demon. So the first time it was a reveal. The second time, I'm like, of course she's a little demon baby. And it was more interesting for me to see that unfold, knowing that she's just a devil from the get go and seeing how that escalates. So I'm like, yeah, okay, Gabriel, of course you know she's a demon baby. You play a priest in all your movies. You're not going to like her. Okay. (laughs) Well, I thinking of Gabriel, I made a very – I saw a really strong connection to Poltergeist with this movie. Craig T. Nelson, how he's useless. Gabriel is useless. It's the same. (laughs) I put that in my notes. I'm like, god damn it. (laughs) 
Gabriel useless is, husband. is this movie's useless Craig T. He's one step behind everyone <laughs> with what's going on and he doesn't he's not very empathetic. He's not empathetic, he's not children. engaged, <laughs> he's just there. And and I put in my notes when certain actions happen, I'm like, Are you gonna do something? And it's like, No. No, he's not gonna do shit. <laughs> So he's. It's interesting that the, the, there's a lot of parallels with Poltergeist. Like even the starting with the grandma dying. This happens in Poltergeist too. But I immediately like, oh, remember in Poltergeist too when the grandma died oh. and then living with the grandma and all that stuff. Okay. And then she talks about having the her mom living with them mm. for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, Tony's Joe Beth. Oh. And I think I think this was on purpose. I think he's darkening and deconstructing the family drama within. Mm. Um. Poltergeist, and for listeners, when I go back to the beginning, our very first podcast is about Poltergeist, and I think there's a lot of connections because a lot of the subtext of Poltergeist is overt in this mm. movie. So Tony does her motherly duties. She checks in on Charlie, and Charlie obviously is she's having a moment. She's upset because Grandma Ma Witch, you know, they were close. Of course, you're a little demon baby. That's Grandma. She's she summoned Paymon, this demon, to be present in Charlie's body. And I'm very curious about your thoughts on this, because there's a whole trans undertone about this, about the demon can only inhabit a male body. And then this happened to be a female. And there's like a lot of resentment that the demon has to be in the female body. Yes. And and it's almost like the demon is in the The wrong body. The wrong body. So it's like a reverse trans situation right mm-hmm. it's almost like the movie is which is an interesting to... theme at that time i feel yeah it's like the the, the demon needs to be in a well, cisgender body as opposed to a transgender body so yeah, what are demon <laughs> pronouns <laughs> <laughs> and so i i thought the movie did weird things with gender because yeah it, to me it was purposefully purposefully confusing the audience about Peter, which is the brother, mm-hmm. about his sexuality, even though it was really weird because he's clearly straight, but then they would they would give these weird hints that would throw you off. And I think this is part of the whole like the demons in the wrong body thing. Mm. But do you remember when they show him at school and he's like he's staring at the at ass in front of, at the yeah. ass, uh-huh. but then he gets a text from the boy, uh- <laughs> and it's just, just very confusing. And then the the, I think the guy texted him, bring your dick to I the know, party later on. funny text. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? It was just like perplexing and bizarre. And I think that confusion, again, the movie, I think, makes you feel like you're in the perspective of the demon in the wrong body thing. That's an interesting... I think that's what it's doing. Okay. I, I definitely see that. That's so really this trends reading that you're saying, he, the movie makes the audience feel like they're in the wrong perspective before we move too far away from the opening obituary credit do you remember the scene where she pulls out stuff from like the grandmother's boxes and then like pulls out this letter oh yeah mother and so i thought it was interesting that the movie makes you read the obituary and about five or ten minutes later it makes you read this letter the movie makes you read and I thought that was so interesting. That doesn't happen very often in movies. But you have to, like, sit... The the shot is long enough for you to read the entire thing. Are you supposed to read it? Well, wait, what does it say? I don't really remember. It was, like, part. a letter from her mom that she was reading. It was... I, I don't even remember the contents of the letter. It's like, Annie, like, a gift she gave her or something. I don't even know what it was about. But I had to read the whole thing because the shot was, like, 
long hmm. enough for you for the audience to read it. It was like a scribble paper thing. Hmm. I remember but that I re- later on, but yeah, I don't recall that in the beginning. Actually. And it, I thought it was interesting that she was reading her mother's handwriting, and we had just read the whole obituary, like not that many minutes before in the movie i love as a storytelling device i love having the dead person a la laura Mm -hmm. palmer i love having that off camera so you as an audience member can create your own character like you choose your own adventure of who this person was and i remember when my mom passed away i would find things and and her handwriting of like to do next week and whatever and oh killed me i was just sobbing but i also resonated with the handwriting because if you think about it when you're a kid you you know what your parents like i mean if you're forging your parents signatures on report cards or whatever you're doing (laughs) but you you know what their signature or their handwriting really looks like maybe it's through cards and letters or you know permission slips i don't know you just know what that what their handwriting looks like and as they age you can kind of see it changes a little bit and and when my mom passed away, I remember seeing these letters and I was just like, oh, it just something so nostalgic about the writing. So I kind of put it in that realm. And maybe I was personally distracted by that. No, that, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. She's she's looking through pictures of her mother. Right. Mm-hmm. And also her traces that she leaves behind hmm. and trying to make sense. And this is when she finds all the all the. Which is all foreshadowing, all the like spiritualism and yeah. all the weird books. But she doesn't look at it too hard. She, she does a I double know. take at the <laughs> end. <laughs> Better not take that to Goodwill yet, Tony. It's not happening. <laughs> so, um, um, and, but speaking of like your rewatch, knowing that Charlie is Paymon, mm-hmm. I that was really cool to watch the bird sequence. Yes. Because then you realize, oh, it's Paymon figuring out his way out of that body. Yes. So I because I noticed when they go to that party because you know she's allergic to nuts which is they establish in that um, funeral scene mm-hmm. they make a point of showing that chopping of the nuts mm-hmm. and Charlie's looking at it and so I was like oh she knows that the nuts are in the chocolate cake and I was like of course the demon figured out earlier with the bird thing uh-huh. okay I gotta kill this bitch uh-huh. I'm gonna go eat some nuts <laughs> and then I'm gonna somehow orchestrate which is so evil right. Because the girl is somehow in there innocently. (laughs) Okay. I I have two things to say about this. One, this nut chopping scene is insane. It is so, like, if if this were in your script, I would tell you, I'd be like, gee, why are high school kids enthusiastically chopping up all these nuts at a party? How many high school parties (laughs) have you been to? And I don't care that they're making a cake. Again, I have never been to a high school party where they were serving cake. Like, it just doesn't happen. And uh, making the cake. Oh, yeah. Making the cake, putting the nuts. Like, uh, anyways, I mean, that could have just been an easy, easy fix of, oh, she grabs a cookie. She's eating chocolate the whole movie. Maybe she just grabs a Hershey bar, an M&M, and it has a nut in it. It's so, I just, I hated that part. I was like, what the hell is this? But also, the second thing I want to say, for the bird thing, just to clarify, because it's so, so much foreshadowing, at the high school, the bird goes into the window thumps against the window and you're like oh that's never a good omen and little charlie slash paymon notices it and she goes outside finds a dead bird cuts its head off and that's when you start being like okay i'm not on charlie's side so much like what the hell is happening with this chick and then she goes to the party with um alex wolf slash peter who alex wolf acts his ass off in this film i did not appreciate it the first time around either he is so good in this um 
But yeah, they're at that party. He doesn't want to take his lame little sister, but Tony Collette insists. And then he wants to go get high, and she eats a piece of cake with the nuts in it. Uh, but I have to say that the only reason that they're making the cake is if there's pot in the cake. That could be the reason. Maybe. But it's they're already smoking cake. weed. Like, no, I don't buy. No, you're not going to create the cake at the party. <laughs> no. But it, it would it would really be a brownie. So why didn't it just? Which a brownie has nuts. Yeah. Brownie would make more sense. So she starts eating the cake with nuts on it, and Peter's getting high. Here's where we cement this movie as okay. The, ne- the next upcoming sequence is going to be cemented in horror film history. We have the escalation of she eats the nuts and there's this mm-hmm. gasping. She can't breathe. She can't breathe. So it's the anxiety of the audience because we're already feeling uncomfortable and weird. So we can't breathe. She can't breathe. Her throat's closing. We see the brother whisk her away to the car. He's driving. He's driving. She's like choking for life and her face is contorting even more so. And so you are just feeling really anxious with her he he's looking at her the music's escalating he swerves to miss a carcass in the road we see a telephone pole we're like oh god this is not going to be good and she's decapitated and i remember the entire theater gasping and this time i i couldn't even look because i knew what was happening i remember sitting there like alex wolf sat there in the driver's seat and he's just staring straight ahead processing the shock much Mm. like tony collette did at the beginning of the movie he can't believe that that just fucking happened it's kind of the equivalent of that scene in midsummer where the the two old couples jump oh yes the same kind of shocking effect yeah his midpoint he's like i'm gonna fuck you up and you never forget it talk about horror you never forget these moments it is implanted in your brain and that's what makes a horror movie it is, it's truly the most horrific point in the movie. And it's also kind of like a shower scene in Psycho because they advertised the movie with, the with kids. Millie Shapiro. Uh-huh. And it was all about Millie Shapiro, the trailer, the posters, everything. They mm-hmm. made you believe this movie was about Millie Shapiro's kid character. Right. And the fact that she's dead like 15, 20 minutes into the movie. You're like, what? Did it do this? And, um, and, and also the, the sound. Because yes. they, they really advertise that in the trailer. Because, yeah, it's a horror movie. You need that sound design to for, you know, a, a fear device. But I thought it was way more in the movie than what it was. The reason you don't see it coming and it's so shocking is because you really expect the movie to revolve around her. You do. And also, um, it's, it's still kind of taboo to try and, and kill a kid in a movie. I mean, this would be a great double feature with Baba Duke. I was like, oh, there's this theme about grief in the 2010 movies that's mm-hmm. strong. That um, and I even wrote, okay, so the 2000, the the first decade of, of this century from 2000 to 2010, the 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 subgenre of horror that was at its peak was torture porn. Is this grief porn? I think oh. there's a lot of movies about grief, and they're so intense and deep and that is interesting. And, yeah, I agree with you. If yeah. you look through some of the movies that we've seen, they have this Ingmar Bergman heaviness mm-hmm. dealing with grief and making grief the horror and not the death. All right, let's move on. Um, so, so um, we are at the party. Charlie's been decapitated. So. I mean, this is a movie about, this is like Marie Antoinette rolling heads, right? 
Heads the whole movie is like, who's going to get decapitated first? Because it's interesting. As a horror movie that's kind of like a family drama, it does have a raising of the stakes with the horror. So when you think of a slasher film, somebody gets killed at the beginning and then more people get killed in more creative ways. This movie is about heads rolling. So you got the, this is the first kill, the first head roll. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot more head rolls coming down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about these moments. Let's go back to Alex Wolf in the car. Because okay. I think this is one of the one of those moments where the you, the audience, and the character are one. Yes, you're sitting there just like him in shock, not Stunned. knowing how to even move in your seat. Like, did that and, just happen? Yes. And the way he kind of says, "I'm just kind of, kind of drive home," and that whole sequence of him. I mean, what do you even do? Like, what do you do? You're like, I, I have to go home. <laughs> I, uh, and go to bed, and then I love that dissolve that they do when he's going to bed, and yes. it dissolves back onto his face, <gasps> like yes. you can't get out of your head. Yes, <gasps> I wrote that too. I I just thought that was a genius filmmaking move. I and also to hear Tony's reaction in the background, we're, we're looking at him. She has this guttural scream, freak out, and then they pan to her, and then it's it's a kind of wide, it's a beautiful wide, but she's also profile in the dark, and then he's in the hallway. So you just get reaction upon reaction, and it's just oh. And then they cut to the severed head, which ah, is to shock you yet again. Covered in it's ants. So well done. Ah, I mean, let's, this let's is talk about it editing. That whole sequence is the most brilliant thing ever. These close-ups of Alex Wolf with dissolves. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you can't get out of your head. You can't mm-hmm. get out of this drama. Mirror the whole miniatures yeah. inside the house, which reflect the house thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the fear of this movie is that once you go out through that traumatic event, you will really not be able to get out of your own emotions or your own head. Mm-hmm. And that's so scary. I mean, mm-hmm. what's scarier than that? <laughs> but and, and we also have little... Um, clips of tony as her life progresses she's making miniatures of her mom standing in the doorway Mm. and you know weird crude details just day-to-day life because that is cathartic for her so i was shocked the first time to see that she was actually going to represent charlie in in the dollhouse too i'm like oh that was a shocking when oh when she had when he Gabriel Byrne, useless. Oh, God. Gabriel Byrne walks in on her making the new, the model of the yeah, accident. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, it's a bird's eye view. It's an objective <laughs> perspective. I thought it was amazing. So, so, uh, so then we have Peter, um, Alex Wolf. He goes back to school. He's smoking weed like he does. And he starts hyperventilating much like Charlie. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, so he's still grieving and processing. The demon has not absorbed him in any way correct because the no, no, first no, no, no. time yes. the demon only gets into him at the very end of the okay because yeah the first time yes. i actually thought i'm like oh is he having kind of because I, I was not hip to the vibe that the demon was in charlie the entire time the first time and the first time i saw this i thought that the demon had left charlie and encompassed his body and now i'm like oh no he's having panic attacks he's trying to sit with his guilt he's trying to process so Tony, with with her processing, she attempts to go back to the support group. She can't do it. And I've never been to a support group. I went to therapy after my my parents died, and I highly recommend it. It was essential for me. And But I was very resistant to support groups. I'm like, eh, I don't know about this. So okay. these sequences I find very, very interesting. Because she drives there, and she tells Gabriel, oh, we're in the movies. And he's like, <laughs> okay. 
And so she goes and she, this is when we get the most amazing way of telling a backstory in a movie, which mm-hmm. is through Tony Collette, mono, insane monologue about like, she's not going to talk. She doesn't want to go. And then she just lets it all out. Mm-hmm. And this is a very Fight Club meatloaf moment. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about um, that. Yeah. Even the shots reminded me of, of Fight Club. But the interesting thing about that scene that I didn't notice the first time is has a connection to the three men and a baby Cobra Kai moment <laughs> at the beginning of the movie with Millie Shapiro because they cut to this shot and Anne Dowd, which we'll get to in a second, Anne is in the shot staring at her. I never noticed that. Oh, I didn't notice her that either this is, time. Her character is not introduced here. It's introduced in the next scene, oh, in the parking lot yeah. scene. So she's just there, like, looking at her. And she's this quick cut. She starts to leave. She's waved down in the parking lot. Now, if Ann Dowd waves to you anywhere, bad shit is going to happen. <laughs> Leftovers. Handmaid's <laughs> Tale. Ann Dowd. <laughs> she brings evil. No. Oh, I was going to say, the movie has this, I don't know if this is related to this or anything, constant low washing machine sound throughout the whole movie that I literally paused because I thought my washing machine was on. <laughs> I didn't get that. <laughs> Maybe your washing machine weird, was on. There's like a weird... No, mm, yeah. That was very unsettling. And it cuts off at certain moments, it comes back, and it's just... No, I, the, I do agree to that. soundscape of the movie. Tony is going through it. She met Ann out in the parking lot. They're having this really awkward family dinner. The son is processing all of his pain. And that's when they get into Mm -hmm. the really vicious fight that, again, Oscar moment number two for Tony Collette. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I I love how she fights with him. And I love his understated performance. And he's obviously stewing in his his guilt. and, And she feels resentful. And they're just all on edge. And then when she screams, the fucking face on your face! I just thought that was such a great line. It was so organic. I mean, you're just so mad. Things don't even make sense anymore. And he's he's shocked because he loves his mom and he doesn't really accept his responsibility about this. He's still just really trying to go through it. She goes Babadook insane. And then she tries to um, use techniques to calm herself down and go back to dinner and just be calm. It's a coping mechanism that apparently she has had her entire life with her crazy mom. And... Peter, Alex Wolf, he comes to her so understatedly of like, well, like who told her to come to the party with me? Just like in yeah. one sentence just destroys her. And he, that's not And that, then you see and then you see her then you see her face and oh, her face is all there. She contorts and then <laughs> and then she storms out. And then we get to our second Andowd parking lot scene. They're, they're at Michael's or Hobby Lobby or whatnot in Utah. Exactly. <laughs> And, uh, and she's like, I can't believe you're in this parking lot. And this beautiful, it's a, a great contrast and like this moment of hope because the movie is so, so dark. And that's when Andal pretty much cements her fate of, I went to this guy and I was a skeptic, but come with me, do a seance. So she is selling the seance hard, 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 hard. Like it is Bitcoin. She is selling it so hard. <laughs> like I was getting anxious from that. I'd be like, you're, you're coming on too strong. And, and um, I love, I love the blocking and the, the performance. The way she gets in her space and like grabs her, yes, it's just so, it's so invasive. <gasps> and uh, so let's get to the seance. Let's just cut straight to yeah, that. Then they have their changeling seance Gosh, at Anne's. Love the changeling. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> and I remember it cuts. So you think you have this hopeful moment 
with the beautiful sunset shot, and then it cuts that dark moment where she turns on the candle. Yep, it's like nope, no, like, there is no hope. Back in the cave. <laughs> The flame, you know, bursts and um, and then a glass moves. But to me, what was a great jump scare? Because you're like, okay, we're going to see that Tony is going to be witness to this seance, that the demon is here or, is like, or a ghost is here. Like this supernatural reality is a thing. What made me jump in the theater and creep me out this time around too is somebody just goes to her hair. Like her mm-hmm. hair just slightly blows and it just made me jump because it made me think about universal horror nights or any haunted houses in you know around halloween i don't care about the people jumping out at me when somebody lightly touches like my leg or blows in my ear or they're like behind me and they whisper that is the worst kind of scare it's so intimate it's oh yeah that's the jump scare that i like and and the same thing happens when she comes back from the seance She's just a little freaked out. And then we hear the. And Tony oh just jumps around and, you know, she looks in the back seat. She's freaking out. But just that one little click. Is it- I can't believe, you know what? I looked up. I can't believe Tony Collette's only Oscar nomination is still the sixth sense. That's that's it. Crime. That's a crime. Yep. Only nomination. Yep. Supporting actress uh, for sixth sense. That's it. I mean, she got an Emmy I for thought Unbelievable, she was right? For- she got an Emmy at least for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So her TV, she's got on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and like for, pieces of her, her she's really good. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why she's doing so much TV. She's like, fuck this stuff. Emmys love me. Tony, like, she goes to sleep after this very traumatic day. And it's like she wakes up and she sees ants on her pillow. And I am sorry, her reaction. Like, I, I get that this is a storytelling device. I understand it, but the first time and the second time, I'm like, no, 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 no. If I even feel like there is a, a hair on my arm, especially if there's like a little hair on my face or like an eyelash falls, if I think there is a bug on me, I like convulse. And I'm not deeply afraid of bugs. It just startles me. I'm like, what the fuck is this? But so she very calmly, coolly, collectively goes and follows the trail of ants to her son's room. And, you know, it, it turns out that she's sleepwalking, but she, she goes to the room and she sees Peter and his face is an anthill. And that's kind of gruesome to see. Um, and then we have this really brutal thing. Yeah. Oh. This, is, this is an inspiration for my film. It, yes. Where I, she blurts out, I never wanted to be I your mother. I never she wanted to be your mouth. mother. And then she kind of hints that she tried to abort him and his reaction, he's so heartbroken. And it's really gut-wrenching to watch. And you know that this is her anxiety. Like, you, you at this point, you don't know if it's a dream or not. You kind of feel like it is. But um, oh, it, it was just really hard to watch. So even if you're not invested in the horror, you're just watching this family really implode. So it's a dream within a dream. She wakes up. And we as the audience, we are just sitting with these really ugly feelings. And so she immediately runs. She apologizes to Peter. She's like having a psychotic break. She's The girls had a tough time. And then, you know, she's like, hey, everybody, let's go have a seance. Because that's what you do in the middle of the night. Oh, yes. <laughs> the second seance. Gabriel, useless husband. Craig T. Gabriel. I don't know how I feel about this trope. Like, I really wish they showed the husband trying to do something thinking that he was a protector i don't know like he just seems so it's in, disengaged it's interesting. yeah and then he 
and even when he's dealing with the whole like, oh, they desecrated the grave, and he gets the phone call, and he's trying. Oh, to, he could give a shit, like, and that's what I wrote in my notes. I'm like, are you gonna do something? Or are you kind of gonna let that lapse? I mean, he just doesn't seem interested. He doesn't seem present at all. So they go downstairs. She talks them into having the seance, and it's really sweet and endearing because it's Peter, the son, who's just like, yeah, I'll do this because he's just like sick of this shit, and he also wants to. You know, he loves his mom. At the end of the day, he loves his mom. And Gabriel's, like, refuting everything. Well, this is this is very Jobeth Williams when she's trying to show Craig D that um, little Heather work can move through the floor, and she gets really excited about it. It's like, oh, let me show you, it's working. That is That's what it reminded me of. And she has this, like, manic energy. Yeah. Because she's like, no, no, it's going to work. It's going to work. She's, like, trying to convince them, like, no, no, I'm telling you, just trust me. She becomes undowed. So, okay, so she's possessed by Charlie. It's really creepy. Um, I think it's Paymon has been summoned. And this is when you start seeing Paymon a little bit more present. So okay. in the next scene, Alex Wolf is at school. And this is when you see the blue lights going boom. And I think that's like a symbol of Paymon or something. It's very Donnie Darko. Yes. <laughs> and then he sees his reflection. And his reflection is himself smiling at him. And I think this is now Paymon appearing yes. as reflections. Very Poltergeist 3. Yeah. And also, you know. for some reason, and please tell me if I'm wrong, it reminded me for some weird reason on Night- Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know, because it had like that 80s oh, high school yes. vibe or something. It just... Well, the scenes where Nancy's at school and then she sees the dead body of her friend, of yeah. Amanda Wiz, being dragged down the hallway. And where's my hall pass and all that shit. And can we yes. talk about a really quick shout out to Santa Clara University? A lot of your students wanted us to do Hereditary. And here we are. We're doing it. We're doing yeah, this. Yeah, this is a popular film with the kids today. With the youths. Which... <laughs> With the youth, which baffles me a little bit, because also Babadook is another one. I think because of this grief theme, this grief porn <laughs> subgenre that we've discovered today. But I guess I'm, I'm thinking, I guess in terms of also pre-pandemic, because Hereditary also came up at UNC mm-hmm. as a favorite before like 2019, 2018, mm-hmm. before the COVID times. So this interest in grief and trauma. It's been going on for a, at least 10 years. For a while, yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Well, and it's also exploring that, family dynamics. And, and the nuclear family is pretty much non-existent. There's like a mm-hmm. few lucky ones, but it's, it's a whole different structure. The nuclear family doesn't really exist. And before you're kind of damned for not having that. Now it's like, no, we have a new construction of what's our familial module. But um, what I wanted to point out for your students at Santa Clara is that, oh, God damn, high school sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, they're sitting there with these hard desks as this guy drones on and on. And as he was speaking, you know, they're, I think it's like English lit or something, but they're yes! foreshadowing. Wait. They're talking about I no free your... will and all that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I see what you're saying. This scene is very much reminiscent of the scene from Never Know She with Liz Shay plays the teacher Love and she's uh, giving an English class about Shakespeare mm-hmm. and Nancy's there. So Liz Shea, if you all know her, she plays Elise in the insidious movies. Oh, she's everywhere. And she's everywhere she's now. And then also this is uh, another reminiscent, which I think never know was doing referencing the Halloween scene where Lori is at school and they're talking about. Fate. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's always like this, these existential and fun philosophical <laughs> questions in the background, and it's just like, yes, 
And it's just like, yes, we get it. You know, this is what the movie's about. But when you're a teenager, it's just like, ah, shut up. I'm in the Britney Spears. Hit me one more time. <laughs> Video. <laughs> When's it three o'clock? I want to go dance. <laughs> so after he kind of has like a little bit of a freak out at school, like unsettling things are happening. Tony's having her own hellish ordeal. She destroys her workshop, destroys all the houses and miniatures that she's mm-hmm. been working so meticulously on. And, and that's when we do see the tiny little headless Charlie miniature. It's so morbid. It's so, I mean, Gabriel just kind of goes in there like, what the fuck is this? I mean, he just really has no reaction. We had the escalation of Peter going into madness and he's having these night terrors. And this particular scene was another good jump scare. He's in his room dark as all hell he thinks he sees charlie in the corner another theme of this movie everybody's kind of lingering and watching from the shadows and he sees charlie we focus in on her she dips her head down and then this ball rolls it's just a heavy thud and rolls and of course your mind you start just associating all these images together and you start freaking out with him. You are becoming Peter. And so he's screaming and screaming. And then like the hands from the wall start choking him and trying to rip off his head. And that's when he thinks that Tony Collette is again, you know, angry with him and trying to punish him. And really she's in his room. She's like, Oh, I heard you screaming. I heard you screaming. Here I am. And this is also a moment that, um, is reminiscent of one of the other influences in this movie, which is uh, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, the hands mm. coming out of from the banisters behind yes. his bed. So then the next scene after that is the burning book scene. Okay. Right? Okay. This is where they start losing me. Because I, I even did the timestamp, and it was like an hour 31. I'm thinking that we need to wrap some things up, and here we're given new introductions of devices this is where she tries to burn the book and it burns her hand the first time yeah she, she puts it like the little sketchbook into the fire and then her sleeve is on fire and she pulls it out and so somehow now she's tethered to the book and i thought okay well you can see where the whole book it's almost like a device to kill quick <laughs> useless gabriel burn later yeah. in the movie <laughs> I can't, but, but uh, no, the first time I watched it, even the second time, I just thought that we don't need this. We don't need any of this. So, okay, so she throws the book into the fire, and then she's really pissed off. She knows that some witchcraft is going on. And the next thing that makes me mad, they do the obligatory upside-down shining shot, where she goes down the hall to Ann Dowd's apartment, like, I need answers. Mm. And she's like, this movie is so original and creepy and wonderful, and so I hate now they're doing these referential shots. And then this is when they show this table and it's all like crazy cult shit inside Undoubts. Right, all that. And, but, but and then, then she finds the, 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 mat. the doormat. Wait, no, let's talk about this mat. I laughed out loud this time. I totally forgot about the mat. I laughed out loud because she looks at the door, the doormat, but then we cut to her being at her house, just furiously going through her mom's things. And it's like, oh, her mom made Undoubt that embroidered doormat. It's like, okay, her mom has this Etsy shop for Satan, like sewing for Satan. I mean, she does arts and crafts and gives it to her cult group. I I don't know. It was so hokey to me. I hated that. I hated the doormat thing. And this is when she um, 
also pulls out the albums and we see I like I do like the pictures. I do like, like that said, reveal. The, the Laura Palmer thing where you see pictures of the mom and her like ceremony where she's like the money person or something. Yeah. The, the Bitcoin <laughs> of the operation. <laughs> I just, she's like king, queen, queen something. They yeah, call her she's having queen. a fabulous time. These photos. She's wearing, you know, her wedding dress, marrying, you know, this demon king theoretically. Um, but then we see in each picture, it's Andald wearing her, you know, medallions, and everybody's evil and old. And the thing that drove me nuts is that I hate that it was the doormat that tipped her off. Not going inside the apartment and seeing like the demonic toys because even uh, there's um. Charlie's. Well, but she doesn't. Go, she doesn't go in. Oh, that was the it. camera's POV. Okay, so never mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The audience is let in on it. So that's what it is. So we're ahead of her. I think maybe that's why it doesn't work as well. Because mm, okay. we know what she's about to find out. And it's like okay, that's why. That's why you lose interest. Yeah. It's, like, it's it's revealing it to you instead of her finding out. They should have cut that out. And yeah, I, I I'm with you. I enjoy looking through the scrapbooks. She's like having the time of her life. She looks so happy in these these photo albums. And I want to ask you why in Rosemary's Baby and this why are cult members so old? Even Midsummer to to a degree, everybody's just old. Is it an art discount? Is it a later in life thing? Like <gasps> let's pick up a new hobby. Why is everybody so old that joins the cult? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's unsettling to see older people revealing beliefs way? that yeah. they didn't have or you don't or you tend to think of your grandparents as like or maybe it's an allegory for dementia that they're just like oh we're, we're into this now <laughs> just like going to to flamenco i guess dancing, because you trust older people and so when you realize that they're involved in something nefarious that hmm. changes your your perception of the world okay then like making you know old people devil worshippers is really weird and unsettling because they're you know close to death and you think of people them to being wiser and so it makes them seem like reckless and young when they're old it's just weird it's like a weird dissonance thing okay it just kind of makes you feel like the world is not right i'll I'll take your balderdash answer (laughs) i'll take that i can also see it being like a sense of community maybe they're there's Others died, and they're like, "Oh, we're at the old folks' home, and we do, you know, racquetball and squash and tennis and the double. Like it's just a new <laughs> activity for them. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so this other thing, like, it starts going downhill for me here. Useless Gabriel is writing an email bitching about his wife, <laughs> and the, and this is just the production side of me. I'm like, guys, he has his empty ass inbox. He has two emails in it. At least, you know, have some spam in there. I don't know. It's just like this sad, desolate email account. And he's bitching about his wife having a psychotic break. And then he gets an email from the cemetery with photos of like, hey, this bitch got dug up. You going to do anything? <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, nope. He's just going to throw that in the trash. He doesn't care. He should just forward it on to Tony. Like, here, your mom's missing. Deal with it. You know, like, I, it was just so infuriating. But we get that as a story point. Fine. And then, is that when Peter? Yeah, that's when Peter. So, yeah, he gets the he gets the call from school to, because Peter has, had his, has been beaten up by his desk. <laughs> and so that's when he goes pick him up at school and he's all injured and his nose is all bloody and, and he's all, like, scene. unconscious. So Alex Wolf did that himself. He insisted on slamming his head against the desk. So... <gasps> He's intense. Uh, part of me is kind of like, calm down a little bit, Heath Ledger, with your methodness. But it worked. He, going back and watching this performance is 
spellbinding. So they do this thing where he has this contorted body motion, this kind of exorcist action where he raises his hand in class and his features are disfigured enough to to really get the other classmates going like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? But it wasn't even the prosthetics. It was his performance. He just starts banging his head so violently and... The oh, I have chills thinking about this. The second he realizes and snaps to of what he's done, he just starts screaming in such horror that I felt it in my bones. His reaction to this, this kid is so good. Uh, and then Gabriel goes and picks him up. <laughs> doesn't give a fuck about anything. Yeah, and Tony, and Tony, you see his body, you see the life leaving his body <laughs> as he pulls in the driveway, and Tony's running towards the car. I'm like, I got something else. Because she has found her mother in the attic. Her mother has her head chopped off in the attic. And, and of course, Gabriel doesn't listen. It's very Rosemary's Baby. And where that doesn't work, in Rosemary's Baby, John Cassavetes was in on it. Here, this Mm -hmm. guy is just so checked out that it almost doesn't really make sense for me. Yeah, and then he gets basically... The t- killed by the book, the device that you don't like. The yeah, exactly. The burns him. <laughs> they cancel each other out. <laughs> so she's trying to commit suicide by having him burn the book. Yeah, right? yeah. She's like, I'm tethered to this book. Here, burn it. And he's like, you're crazy. And then she throws it into the fire. And then and he burns. He and goes then up he and burns. But then it's like, okay, so now he's tethered to the book? Yeah, it, it's not really explained. It's kind of weird. And I didn't like that. I think literally it's written to get rid of him, from, to, to ax him from the movie. Because he... Just as useless as he is throughout the movie, he's also uselessly this kind of unceremoniously disposed from the plot. Oh, that was beautifully said. And so I think this burning book is literally exists to get rid of Gabriel Byrne. (laughs) That's it. That's the only reason it happens. It's just this like oddly written thing. Yeah. And that's why you don't like it because there's no purpose for it. There's never explained. I mean, it could be connected to the whole like paint thinner. I'm going to burn Peter when he was a kid thing. Like it's kind of metaphorically connected to that a little bit. Yeah. But, uh... but, but, and also what they started going in the direction of is like when, when her mom's upstairs and the head's chopped off and he sees it, like he actually sees this body in the attic I thought they would build more to him pointing out that, oh, my God, you did this to your miniatures. Now you're doing it on a larger scale. Like that, if they went in that Uh, direction, I could get with it. But he did it. Well, he... No, but he does say that, though. He thinks it's her. He thinks she dug no, he her. Does say yeah, he, he does, he yeah, does say it. He does. He's like, oh, you did this. But to me, it's like from day but one, doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't believe doesn't... shit. Even when she's like, oh, there's a body up in the attic. He's still like, what? No, there's not. Like, he's he's just so no the entire time. If there was like a shift, that would be different for me. If there was love in the marriage or some kind of... like, There's it... no love in the marriage. <laughs> There is no love. But but wait, I have to say something as we're talking about this. I do think that she went and dug her up. There is there is an interpretation of this movie where you realize that Tony is the person causing everything. Just like she is the designer of the miniatures. She staged everything. When I'm literally realizing as we're talking about it. She's the one who sends Charlie to the party. It's almost like she's causing the events to happen so she can then make a miniature about it. But it's like chicken and egg thing where like she's the designer of the events, like the filmmaker. Oh. And I think there is a 
very, okay, very okay. good chance that if you rewatch this movie, you do realize that there's a connection between the events and Tony affecting those events. So I do think she pulled the mother out of it. She, she was the grave digger and all that shit. You know what? She's gone nuts. I, I mean, okay. That, that is there's no, no other. There's no one else. There's no other cult member. It's her and Anne Dow. No. That's no, it. no, we see at the well, end, the, there's all the cult members. They're all like this whole community in Utah is all about it. There's all the cult members at the end. I, I like your theory. I, I that totally has legs, but no. I mean, it's kind of implied by the movie that there's a part of her that she's not necessarily the sleepwalking side, so to speak, that's doing these things that she's not consciously aware of. Well, so when that's does when does the demon inhabit Tony? Was it in the seance? Because then that so makes sense that I'm the demon thinking... is in her, and then she digs up her mom. Yes. So I'm thinking, I mean, it's not her, it's the demon in her. Exactly. That after Charlie dies, or even when Charlie's there, I think that there's a rewatch to be made where the demon kind of moves around because he's trying to orchestrate his own exit from Charlie. And then after Charlie dies, the demon can do whatever the fuck he wants before he goes into Peter because he doesn't go into Peter until the very end and we'll get there. So he's, I'm also he's, like, he's, why did he... Something needs to happen for him to go into Peter, and that's kind of like what the last part of the movie is about. He can't just go into Peter, so. But it's like, why couldn't he just go into Gabriel Byrne? Guess who gives a fuck about him? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be Gabriel Byrne in this movie. <laughs> I love Gabriel. No, no, he's Byrne. It's suppo- he's supposed to be passed to the child, the male child. The okay. Male. Okay. It's through the moms, the mom, mom to so, daughter. So, so do you that think stuff. that the demon? inserted himself during the seance or when the book is burned? I think the demon definitely spoke through Tony, mm-hmm. right? Which we think it's Charlie because the demon has been in Charlie and that's how we yeah. interpret Charlie. she was possessed for a second. Yeah, so the demon is is trying to transport himself. He's trying on different Peter. hats. He's in Peter in yes. school and he can't like really get there yet. And then he's with Tony. Yeah, it's like he won't, Peter won't let him in. I, Something is going on that the whole point of the movie is that, I mean, this is what we learn at the end. The demon, because she had a second child, got transferred into Charlie, which I'm not exactly sure how that works oh, because I, she had Peter first. Well, because but, I think um, the grandma, through through those photos, it shows that she's marrying Demon King at a very old age. I'm like, oh, this is a later in life activity, like with the ARP cult members. She chose to do this later. Like Peter so was had, already born. Peter Charlie has done his yet. thing. Charlie is so young, so that's what made sense to me. Uh, again, the book burning is a way to get rid of Gabriel Byrne. Maybe the demon wants to get rid of Gabriel Byrne, and it's tricking her into basically killing him. Okay, it's like a trick. Same trick that she. That's how it connects. It's the same trick that was played on her when she almost killed Peter okay. with the burning thing, and da da da. It's like she's the one doing it. She killed Gabriel Byrne. Okay. <laughs> We'll move on. She killed So him. just like Peter killed Charlie, Tony mm-hmm. killed Gabriel. The, the idea that the events are orchestrated is very, very important. Cause I think that's the theme of the movie. That every, that the people, well, they're being manipulated pro- by outside forces. Placed. Exactly. Yes. So that's why you see that when before the accident on the like light pole by the mm-hmm. side of the road, you see the symbol, the, the cult symbol. Because I think they literally put the carcass... They they orchestrated the entire scene for Charlie yes. to be the captain. And going back to the high school um, discussion of there's no such thing as free will and people are reacting, yada, yada. 
So Peter wakes up. He goes down. He sees grilled Gabe on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And then Tony is creepily over his shoulder. Really fun shot. But also, Alex Wolf has these great close-ups. And he, he can feel what we, the audience, have felt this entire time of somebody watching you. He feels mm-hmm. it. And he's afraid to turn around. And then she, like, comes running. Like, that is a that jolting scene. That is the scariest scene. thing. Yeah. And the way she runs after him also reminded me of that Exorcist 3 jump scare. Yes, the jump scare of absolutely. all jump scares. Yes, <laughs> when you just see the knife going across the hall. Like, the, the woman carrying the knife, just calmly yes. following the yes. person. No, with the scissors. The oh, scissors. the scissors. That's what it Huge is. Huge-ass fucking scissors. Oh, my God. <laughs> Chills. Um, Aswell runs up into the attic, and this is when you... That insane scene where, like, she's banging her head against the attic door mm. on the ceiling of the hallway. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Tony's banging her head like there's no tomorrow in the attic door at the top of the hallway while Alex Wolf has now entered the attic and this is one of those like moments like just like Laurie Strode enters the bedroom with like the headstone of Judith Myers and all her friends are dead and Annie's dead on the bed Mm -hmm. and it's also the the end of Friday 13 part 2 where um, the final girl discovers the severed head of the mother absolutely and all these references jam packed into one (laughs) yes it's like and so then and I don't remember how Tony gets into the attic. Does she, does she break through the door or does she come some other way? But she somehow makes it into the attic. I can't remember how for some reason. And just seeing someone sever their own head <sighs> is is also reminds me of the ending of Fatal or the I guess the alternate ending of Fatal Attraction where um I think her name was Alex, actually. It is. Her character Glenn Close? played by Glenn Close. Yeah, it's Alex. Yeah, her name is Alex. She when she slits her own throat. This is the alternate ending. Have you oh, seen it? Oh, I have not she, seen that. He has his fingerprints are on the knife, and so she slits her own throat, so they will blame him for her murder. She kills herself. Oh. Ooh. She was the ultimate I know. move. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's so, a way to fuck somebody up from the grave. Wow. So all heads have rolling at this point. And this is, I think, when he sees um, Tony's head roll, then he jumps out of the window? Or how does that work? Is somebody coming after him? He decides to jump. Oh, no. What happens is he sees the the little senior citizens lurking in the shadows. All the naked old people. And what kills me, and it's such a good direction, is that there's this one little sweet old lady just smiling. Her tits are out. She's like probably 65. She's like, hee hee. And it's just so creepy because everybody's just staring at him. And again, oh, this goes back to whenever um, Tony Collette was dancing on the ceiling earlier. Mm-hmm. We have Dolph Lundgren in the shadows. And you see him because oh. his hair is so white and his teeth are so white. And that this was is... that was what I was like, oh, that's Three men and a baby's back. Okay. So throws himself out the window. Well, and then... The garden. Yeah. Right? And we hear the sprinklers, like that another good sound design cue. Just like the ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. Yes. And we see Tony's corpse float up into the treehouse. So now we go to the treehouse yes, of terror. But before that, before that, this is when Paymon goes into <gasps> You're uh, correct. Wolf. So yeah, we There's we, this little light. The Donnie Darko light, light that we've been seeing. The Donnie Darko light and goes, goes into, into his into, back. And I think I just realized what needed to happen. They can't force the demon into the person. The person has to kill themselves or die in some way that's of their own doing. 
That's why in order to get the demon out of Charlie, Charlie needs to die in an accident. They can't just pull the demon out of a person and put him into a person. They have to die. And they have to die by their own making. And that's or that's how then the demon... That also seems like such an easy way. Like, that house was not that big. He just throws himself (laughs) out the window and it's done? Like, they're not going to show him landing on a sprinkler a weird way? Or, I don't know. That's interesting. Um, So, anyway, they see Tony float up. Floating. It's it's pretty peaceful. It's kind of like a, oh. It it was like a Lynchian (laughs) effect in Twin Peaks when they kind of float in that amazing black and white episode. Um, Twin Peaks The Return. So Tony floats up into the treehouse, and he follows. And then we all, as the audience, we know Peter ain't Peter anymore. Peter's done. So he goes up to the treehouse. He looks around. That's where we see all the old senior. Decapitated. And and, and so that's what I was going to say for you when you were talking about Tony maybe going insane and positioning her mom in a certain way. So these people are positioned in a certain way, but I think it just still reflects the outside forces playing with them and positioning them, Mm. not Tony. Yes. So that's why I don't think that Tony went crazy. I think it's like a, I think it's the cult. Like they're all. Tony, Tony is sometimes the person. Right. And sometimes there is the the larger demon. Cause remember, I think payment is just one of many demons. He's the eighth king of hell. Apparently number eight. eight. Yeah, he's number eight. So there's more of them. So there's someone above payment, which makes it even scarier. Prequel? So I think, yeah, they could keep going. When when you go into this treehouse chapel of death with all the decapitated cult members, I had, this is a strange connection, but I made a connection to Carrie, to the ending of Carrie, when Carrie locks herself in that room with the weird... Christ oh, with the there was eyes. a ton of carry for me in this for the mom. So it's, it's that idea that that there is a higher power, right? Because the mom is super religious and it's like, oh, clean yourself, child, and all that stuff. They're gonna laugh at you. But then at the same time, Carrie has like telekinetic power, so it's like the power of this woman coming into womanhood, mm-hmm. right? When she has her period and all this stuff, versus this imposition of religion. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie plays with similar. Well, yeah, it's about matriarchs art of, and yeah, yeah, being matriarchs. feminine power, for sure. I, I do believe that. And also, remember in our episode when we covered Carrie, remember we talked about there's that Chris Cornell Jesus in the closet? And then mm-hmm. Alex Wolf goes up, now he's Paymon, goes up and sees like this weird freaky sculpture of like, this is supposed to be me. Like, it's like a scarecrow. Like, okay. And then they have the picture of witch grandma next to him like she's the queen and then you know paymon's the the king demon of hell and they're all bowed down the corpses all the naked old people everything but what's hilarious to me and out takes like the crown from the scarecrow demon statue that's there to honor him and she's like don't worry charlie you were da 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 and she explains for the audience that haven't gotten it quite yet if you haven't gotten it now she's gonna spell it out at the end that you're a demon the entire time. We're here to serve you. We summoned you. We're responsible for this. But then she puts this Burger King crown on top of him. <laughs> I was going to say the Burger King crown. I hated it. It's a flimsy-ass <laughs> crown. Here, Grandma has an Etsy shop, and they get embroidered doormats. You get this cardboard crown? Come on. Cult and then budget. And it cuts to, to the, the, the last shot, which 
frames the treehouse kind of like Tony's, but then it's in darkness, right? So this is where you get this sense of this, this, there's these that we're peering demon. in to the the dollhouse, but and and we also have that Midsommar ending too. Like where, whereas this is a very special shot for Hereditary, the doll's house and the bird's eye view. For this and Midsommar, we end with a close up of a phenomenal actor staring into the void being crowned and being the willing slash unwilling ruler of a bunch of white people. Did you notice that Andout calls him Charlie? Yes, I did. Yeah. What is that about? Can we talk about that for a second? She calls him Charlie because she has that deliberate line of what I think the theme was addressing of not feeling the right sex in your body. Because Charlie... I think from the get-go, Charlie was like, I'm displaced. I I don't belong here. Like, I'm not loved. Like, she she was just like, I am not about this She's life. also a name, I think they show at some point in the movie that her name is Charles. Yeah. Which is a typical boy name, yeah. right? And, yeah, and she's just um, like, oh, Grandma wanted me to be a boy. And then, and at the end, Ann Dowd says, I'm going to get the right quote. She's like, oh, we corrected the female body. Now you're a boy. So I feel like Paimon was loud and proud, and all these other different people saw him as that. He was just inhabiting this vessel. But Charlie and Paimon are of so the like, same Paimon entity. is like a trans man finding his... Yeah. Getting his top-down surgery. Yes, but an, an evil, an evil one. <laughs> <laughs> he does not represent... <laughs> No, 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 yeah, yeah, but I'm like trying to. We were thinking, reading, doing the trans. Yeah, because there, there's such reading. a strange trans reading to it. He's just like, I don't feel the, like this is not my right body, yo. This is not it. Like, get me the right body. And he goes to painstaking lengths, and he has people that support him to be like, you belong in this body now. But so the and, fact that the end line is Andowd saying, we corrected it. I just felt like that was such an interesting line to end on. And also, connecting back to our initial discussion on Get Out, this is a very similar thing to Get Out because it's about people stealing other people's bodies and possessing them. Mm. Uh, right? Not the racial undertone, the racial themes of Get Out, but it's the same thing, which is weird and interesting. Well, you just bookended right? that beautifully. Do you have any more <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> I think that's a good, good note to end on because we kind of seen a thread between all these... 2010s movies there's a there's a connection between them years from now people are going to look back at the decade and it's going to be one of those horror decades like the 70s yeah where it just thrived yeah before we leave one point that i want to make this ending really felt oh my god it's the exact same ending as midsummer and the witch yeah like pretty much the same thing and they're all kind of somewhat Heirs of Rosemary's Baby's ending. But Midsommar, I just felt like it was victorious. I loved, like, there was vengeance. Like, these people were assholes, and I kind of dug that some of them got their due. I did not equate it at the time when I saw it to Hereditary. I completely blocked out the ending of Hereditary when I saw Midsommar. No, no, but it's when I, when you go back. When you go back, you're like, it's clear as day. But not to leave in a dark now, but all these films, I think, are reflecting something that's very real to us right now, which is cult mentality, right? Mm-hmm. So we have cults across our country where people believe really crazy shit, <laughs> right? Taking I've been over. trying to stare at the corner of my screen, making you think that there's somebody on the ceiling, but with Zoom, <sighs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> oh. 
Mirror <laughs> on the ceiling. I agree with you. No, I, 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 I don't know if these movies were foreshadowing what was to come in the next decade, but well, now studying it's like, history, oh, history repeats itself. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. I think that's hereditary, a, baby. I think that's a very poignant thought for me. I just think it's really funny that a demon can have a peanut allergy. With that, we're out. Thank you guys for listening. Please rewatch Hereditary. It's on Showtime. So get to it. Bye. Yes, bye.